0: We'll be in Acts 6. So there's a verse in Revelation. It's kind of an interesting verse. It's at the end. It's New Jerusalem has descended. Cool things are happening. And it says in Revelation one eight. it says this, that in New Jerusalem, there will be no cowards, no faithless, No liars, no murderers, and no sexually immoral. And you read that list and they make sense for the most part. No people that don't have faith because faith means you trust in God. So you're in God's kingdom. You should probably trust him. So that makes sense. No liars because we need to trust each other in the new kingdom. So if you're a liar, you can't trust that person. That's gonna mess things up, right? No murderers, because they would really ruin eternity. Wow, I'm in eternity. Bang, you're dead. Ah, what a bummer, right? So that makes sense. Uh, no sexually immoral. Uh, that probably is uh, in Eden. Humanity was divided. You know, Adam was created, and then Eve was taken out of him. So what probably happened there was masculinity and femininity were divided in the garden. And if you have paid attention in your life, men and women are different, right? I just put it simply to people like this. My wife cries at weddings, I don't. It could be that I'm doing the wedding and that would be awkward. These two are never gonna make it, oh my goodness. Right? That would be weird. So I try to keep those emotions under control and I do a pretty good job of it. But there's differences, right? So in, in, in eternity, that difference is probably gone and Jesus says, hey, in eternity, things are be di- different, right? It says that in Matthew chapter 22. Right? So I get all that. But the one that's an enigma is cowards. No cowards in heaven. Like, what? But I was born with a yellow streak. Like, come on, God, really? No cowards? That seems harsh. But you got to think it through a little bit, I think. What's the number one command in the Bible? Fear not, Fear not. right? Don't be afraid, because fear is the polar opposite of faith. And we all have fear. There's something that we're going to be afraid of. So there's always some like, oh, fear, 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 fear. And I think in this lifetime, what we're supposed to learn in this lifetime is how great God is. And that God is so great that he can actually use even our failures and our mistakes to become trophies of his glory. And that's why in heaven, there'll be no cowards. Because we have this time here where over and over and over again, wow, God, you took my very failing. Can you use it for your glory? Unbelievable. That truly all things do work together, even my mistakes. All things work together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. That my failure can actually be fertilizer and I'm supposed to just keep planting. Keep planting and just trust. Hey, okay, I blew it, but man, I'm heading forward. God can use that. So in chapter six, we have the perfect example of that. A church fails. Do you know that churches can fail? Yeah, I totally know that, man. I filled out a visitor card and no one visited me. I don't know why, because I have such a great disposition. I don't know why they won't visit me. (laughs) Right? Church fails. We talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. But this failure of the church really ends up brilliantly exploding the church and making it increase and grow, gives new opportunities. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's a failure though, and God uses it. So it's this example of, man, we got to trust God even in our failures. So Let's jump in. Verse verse, chapter 6, verse 1. We did this on Sunday, and I did a survey thing on that Sunday, so I'm actually going to kind of maybe answer some of the things I saw in the survey in these verses, I hope. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, growing church, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Hopefully you're here on Sunday, these are two ethnic groups and one group looked down on the other group and the other group didn't like the first group. So there was just kind of animosity. They get saved to come into the church and they're still the same baggage. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The failure is used fabulously by God. Fertilizer, okay? So I just wanna make some notes on kind of body life. So in the survey, there was a lot of people that just said, like, how do you get involved? Which I think in every church is always an issue. Like, how do you get involved? How do how, like, there's some guys that get really involved here. And I think they give you and me some great wisdom on how to be involved in the body, in the kingdom, how to plug in, all right? So I'm gonna give you six things, I think, that you seniors, number one is this. If you want to be involved, number one is you have to believe you're usable. Because whether you believe you're usable or not, you're right. Does that make sense? You're right. If you believe you're usable, you'll be right. If you believe you're not usable, you'll be right. And you kind of got to figure out what type of person you are. So I think there's a great way to kind of break down personalities in the Bible. I think there are three main categories of types of people. There are prophets, there are priests, and there are kings. That's your big three in the Bible. Prophets are really good with words. They speak words, they're talking all the time. That is their... You know, their clay is words. They're gonna use words. They're gonna be speaking sermons, prophetically encouraging, comforting. It's words. That's what prophets do. Priests, their love is people. They wanna be around people. They wanna engage with people. They wanna comfort people. They wanna talk to people. They get energized by simply being around people and having one-on-one conversations with people. They're priests. That's what they love to do. Kings, are good with stuff, things, admin. That's what they're good with. Now, if you get them in the wrong spot, you put a king with a bunch of people and he has to deal with people, here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna be like, these people frustrate me. Off with their heads, right? And you put a priest with things and he's gonna be like, I don't care about this stuff and it'll get stolen, right? So you gotta kind of figure out what, what... Broadly, when I think about the kingdom, am I good with words or people or stuff? Because if you get in the wrong position, you'll be miserable. So I have this saying, I'll read it for you. I stole it. And it's this. And this goes for, I think, a business. It goes for a family. It goes for everything. It's this. The wrong person in the wrong place equals regression. The wrong person in the right place, you have the right position, you know it's needed, but you get the wrong person in that place. The wrong person in the right place, frustration. You ever been frustrated? At a job, in your family, in ministry? Could be you're the wrong person in the right place. The right person in the wrong place. It's not really the right, you know he's the right kind of person, he's gifted, she's gifted, great talents, but man, there's just, it's not working because... The wrong person, or the right person in the wrong place is confusion, but the right person in the right place is progression, and the right people, plural, and the right places, multiplication. What we're gonna see in the book of Acts, right here in chapter six, is you start shuffling things out, the apostles get where they're supposed to be, and this group of seven get where they're supposed to be, and it's the right people in the right places. And verse seven says, The disciples multiplied greatly. So, number one, you gotta believe you're usable. Like, what kind of use do I have? Am I good with words? Am I good with people? If I am I good with stuff? Number one. Number two, you have to identify your talent. Okay, this is where I'm at, but there's all kinds of room underneath each one of those things. What's my talent? And I've had people tell me this: Matt, I don't have any gifts. I talk to a lot of people. I have yet to meet one person that does not have a gift. You may be the exception. I may go to lunch with you and you may, I may at the end of that lunch say, you're totally right, you're 100% useless. <laughs> but I doubt it. Because 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this, that God has given to each of us a gift. And there are these lists of gifts in the Bible. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, First Peter chapter four. And some people say that's all the gifts there are. I don't believe that. They're different every time because I think what is being done by Paul or by Peter is this. He's saying, here are, here's, here, I'm gonna give you some ideas about gifts. So I'm just gonna, boom, here's some ideas. And here's some ideas, And Peter's gonna say, and here's some ways. Right? Because in that, really important gifts aren't covered today. Like sound ministry. I think the sound ministry is an awesome gift. If sound ministry is not going well, guess what? I'm in great trouble, totally, right? It's a bummer. I think about computer people that are able to get podcasts. Have you ever enjoyed a podcast? I think that's a spiritual gift, right? Someone who's really good with computers said, hey, I've got this idea. We could take these messages and broadcast them out to millions of people. And you can have access to information into great preaching, no matter where you're at, no matter what time it is. I mean, how cool is that? You ever been blessed by something on the radio? I think radio is a spiritual gift. So those to me are just ideas. You know, they're super important, no doubt, but it's also today, what do I have? What am I good at? And how could it possibly bless and build the kingdom? And this is what I tell people. Here's how you find out what your talent is. It should bring you joy when you do it. And it should bring other people joy when you do it. Those are both really important. Because there's some people that love to talk all the time and there's a lot of people that don't love to listen all the time. So you gotta have both in there. When you're doing it, people should resonate with it. Bro, you're good at that. Hey, sweetie, that's amazing. When you do that, keep doing that. That is awesome. When you find that lane, Man, stick to it and run hard in it. So number one, you gotta know you're usable, kind of figure out what you're, then start specifying like, this is the talent. This is what God has given me to do, number two. Number three, you gotta grow up. In verse three, it says this. Pick out seven men, good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. I like that it doesn't say, get some really smart guys that are super handsome, <laughs> QB of the football team, charismatic, rich, educated. Like these are actually attainable things for anybody. Get some guys, have a good reputation. People look at them and say, hey, those guys are, they're, they're good dudes. Number two, they've been filled with God's spirit and they've got wisdom. I love that. There are tons of gifted people that have not grown up. There's a term for them today. You know what they're called? The business world has a term for that kind of person. Super gifted, super smart, super educated, but they're lazy. They're, they don't show up at work right. You know, they have every talent in the world. That, you know what they call them now? Peter pans, right? They can fly, they got incredible gifts, but they just wanna go to Never Never Land. I call them vidious. They just wanna go play games all the time. Right? And they're frustrating because they haven't grown up. Great gifts, great talents, man. They could totally do amazing things. But instead, they're Peter Pan's. I have this saying for myself. I'm always a student, never a master. I wanna constantly be growing. I wanna find the best person at whatever it is that I'm doing and be like, I wanna get close to you. I wanna learn from you. I wanna get better at what I'm doing. Always a student, never a master, Right? So all of us should have a plan to like grow up. And and there's one in here. I think we get good reputation. We've talked about the feeling of the spirit, but wisdom. Wisdom is this. It's how to apply what you already know. Do you know that's a gift? To actually apply what you already know, that there are really smart people that are not very wise. My favorite example is uh, Bernie Madoff. Remember him? He made off with fifty billion dollars in a Ponzi scheme. So Bernie made off, you know, had this whole thing going. It was, it was, you know, if you look at it in hindsight, you're like, that's insane. Those kind of returns don't happen. Twenty percent does not happen year after year after year. Something's wrong there. Uh, but this guy named Steven Greenspan. Steven Greenspan is the expert on gullibility. He wrote a book called The Annals of Gullibility, How Not to Be Duped by People. He's the stud on it. Well, he invested $400,000 with Bernie Madoff and lost it all, right? The guy that's supposed to know how to not get duped, right? And then he was asked after post Bernie Madoff, why'd you do it? This was his answer because everybody else was doing it. I'm like, dude, that's like rule number one. That's what your mom said to you. Like, if everyone's jumping off a bridge with you, you just did. You jumped off the bridge, bro. So you can be super smart, but you can just not be wise. So how do you get wisdom? Do you earn it? Do you learn? Because guess what? I know people that I went to high school with And I remember them doing dumb stuff in high school. And I read about them in the paper today and they're doing the same dumb stuff, right? They're going to the bar, they're getting into fights. They wake up the next morning, missing their wallet, new tattoo on their neck in the back of someone's truck. Like, bro, when are you going to learn? When are you gonna apply the knowledge that this has been going on for the last 25 years? When are you gonna apply that? And they don't. So how do you get wisdom? How do you learn to apply which you already know, in a godly, beautiful way. James 1 says this, if anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it to him. But let that man ask nothing wavering because he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he will receive anything of the Lord because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You get wisdom by asking God. A great prayer every morning is, Jesus, today, as I go about my day, I go to work, I'm with my kids, I'm with my family, may may I be a wise man. May I go about it with wisdom, applying the knowledge I already have in a way that's godly and beautiful and peaceful and right. And it comes, it's a gift from God. I love that. So how do you believe you're usable? Kind of figure out your talent, grow up. All of us should have a way of growing up. How am I growing up? What am I doing to grow myself up, to increase my skills, to help, to better me? Am I I growing up? Number four, you need to be known by your community. Notice verse four. Verse five, excuse me. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering and they, the congregation... Chose these seven men. They chose because of relationship. Because they knew them. So if an opportunity came up at Edgewater like this, would your name be chosen? Do people know you? Know what you're good at? Well enough to say, oh, that guy would be perfect for that. That's how these guys got this. I have this position here, not because of my education, not because of my knowledge, because of relationship. That's the reason why I'm here. It's relationship that got me here, right? There's a guy that says, uh, people will take you around the world. Get to know people, they'll take you around the world. It's relationship. That's the key here. Relationship more than anything else opens doors of opportunity. More than education, more than you beating down doors. I'll give you an example. There's this guy named Nathan. Um, we just connected with him because of safe families. He was homeless, two daughters. So his daughters went into, a, into our safe families. They're being taken care of right now. He went to the gospel rescue mission. He's at the gospel rescue mission. Um, they have some policies there uh, that for the first 30 days, you can't get a job. Well, after 28 days, he smoked a cigarette, which you're not allowed to smoke a cigarette. So he broke that rule. He was removed from there. Um, we're connected to him, sort of like, okay, bud. So he starts volunteering, helping us a little bit last week. Um, during volunteering, he gets to know Sean Logue. Sean Logue's asking him and he's like, hey, I just need some work. So Sean's like, I know a guy that needs a, a day of work. So Sean connects him with a guy. He works really hard for this guy. The guy's like, wow, you're a, great, you're a great worker. Do you want a job? He's like, yeah, I totally want a job, but I don't know how to do what you're talking about. No problem, I will help you do that. I will train you, cool. He goes, with this job comes a house. He's like, what? are you kidding me? Awesome. So we went from homeless in like a couple of days because of relationship to having a job and now having a house and going to be reunited with his two daughters, right? That's relationship. Are you known by the community? If you're not known by the community, you miss out on one of the most powerful ways that we get plugged in and involved I can't I can't I can't list the number of times I've talked to people and said, Oh yeah, I was talking to so and so, and out of that conversation came this incredible opportunity. Be in a community group. Be in a community group. Be known by people. That's how these seven guys get launched into ministry, it's because they are known by their community. Number five, learn that know is a spiritual word. The 12 apostles here say, no, we can't do that. We tried to do it. We stunk at it. No, we can't do that. Do you know that saying no is just as spiritual as saying yes? If you're in the wrong spot, everybody's miserable. Jesus said no. Two brothers came to him. And one of the brothers said, Jesus Tell my brother to give me more of my inheritance. Guess what Jesus said? No. Who made me the judge over you guys? I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? That's not my position. No is a spiritual word. Not me. I'm not the right guy for that. I'm sorry. That's really hard to say at times because we don't like disappointing people. But if you don't say no, you'll end up, here's what you'll end up doing. You'll end up in Saul's armor. That's what will happen. Imagine for a second, you know the story. David's gonna fight Goliath. Saul goes, Here's how you need to do it. Put on all these clothes. Put on my armor. Be like me. David should have said no right in the beginning. He tries it on, he's like, Oh my goodness, this is not gonna work. And he has to say, I can't, I can't go out that way. I, I I'm not that guy. I'm the guy with the sling. That's what I am. Imagine if David would have gone out in Saul's armor. What would have happened to him? He'd have been slaughtered. He'd have been destroyed. He got the spiritual word. No, I'm not doing it that way. I have to do it this way. I have to do it with my sling. It is a spiritual word. So yesterday I was walking with Mark Scudset. We just did a big loop. It's a cool. We're in the coolest spot up there. Like you to walk around that old mill and. You see people doing really cool things all the time. <laughs> it's like a great place, man. There's a lot of ministry able to happen right there. So uh, we're just walking and, and we're kind of reminiscing. And like for me, I've said this before, like the first five years was, um, I was wearing Saul's armor. I was trying to be something that I thought I had to be, but I kind of knew, yeah, I'm not really that. I'm not really that. So by year six, I just kind of said, yeah, I started moving like, yeah, I'm not, I can't do it that way. I can't do it that way. It started a movement in me. And I, this guy sat me down for lunch one time and I'll never forget it. He's like, well, I'm going back to Applegate. And I said, well, why? He said, because you didn't teach Galatians like John Corson taught it. I said, well, right, I'm not John Corson. He's like, well, yeah, I'm out of here. Okay, bye. <laughs> it was really like, okay, all right, all right well, Okay. Hmm, but you gotta learn, I'm not gonna do it that way. I won't get to heaven and have God say, Matt, why weren't you more like John Corson? I won't have that. If anything, he'll say, why weren't you more like I made you? Because I made you fearfully and wonderfully. I made you the right person for what you're supposed to do. You have to be able to say no to that stuff and say, this is how God created me and this is how I'm going to do it and be really okay with that. I love what Ruth Graham said one time. When she was asked, she was asked this by a reporter. Do you ever disagree with Billy Graham? Isn't that awesome? Like, I think there's this idea about like pastors and their marriages, like they're like this perfect thing. Like I'd go home after a Sunday and Tony's like, you got him, tiger, lay down. Let me give, like, you ever see Nacho Libre? <laughs> like that, like giving them a massage, you know. What's his name? What's the dude? no. The big wrestler guy, when he's getting the massage, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Ramses, yeah. <laughs> Ramses is the best, like Matt Everly is the best. Ramses' muscles are so big. Like, like that doesn't happen, all right? We're normal people. <laughs> so there's like this crazy idea about, you know, that. So Ruth Graham, I love her answer. Do you ever disagree with Billy Graham? And she looked at me and she goes, of course. If you never disagree with somebody, one of you is unnecessary. (laughs) If that's true, I know a lot of people that are really necessary. (laughs) Hyper necessary. (laughs) That's, That's right. Like we're supposed to be fearfully and wonderfully made who we're supposed to be, right? You gotta learn to say no. I don't fit there, I'm sorry. I can't do that. And then sixthly and lastly, you wanna be... Integrated well into the body life and into kingdom, you have to be faithful. These seven men will faithfully serve tables. There's a verse I have it cut out, memorized, put on my computer at times. It's First Corinthians chapter four, verse two. "It is required. Not recommended not a good idea, it is required of leaders to be found faithful. The requirement, if you're going to lead, like these seven, like the 12 apostles, like anyone in your business, at your home, it is required to be found faithful. I'll tell you something that's going extinct in our world, like the dodo bird, is people that are faithful. I said I would do this and I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna give up until it's done. And I thought in my life, like what I've admired. When I was young in my 20s, it was athletics and bench pressing and big guns. And then I got jobs and started working. Then it was like intellect and accomplishment and great design. And the, the older I've gotten, I'm 46 now. The older I've gotten, you know what I really admire? When I look at men that are older than me, It's not their abs, because mostly it's an ab at this point. (laughs) What I admire is those that have been faithful as husbands and as fathers and have raised godly kids. I say, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's all that matters. There is no greater joy than to know your children walk in the truth. That's what I want. See, when I had my first Carissa, I was the best parent in the world. Now that I have five kids, I'm clueless, right? You're like, oh my goodness. (laughs) It seemed so easy when she was a little baby, right? Now I'm like, ah, she's 17. And she thinks she's an adult. It's harder. I admire those that have been faithful. Paul says this, I finished my course with joy. Not I began it, not I got halfway through it, I finished it. I was faithful to what God called me to do, and I kept running until I crossed the finish line. I love that. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the story of the talents. And when we get to heaven, what do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That's what I wanna hear. God, you've put before me a certain race. I keep praying for wisdom on what that race is and keep refining it, figuring out what my talents are, how I'm gifted, all that kind of stuff. But I wanna run well this race. In Luke 16, he says this, if you've been faithful in little things, more will be given to you. These guys are faithful in the barbecue, barbecuing for widows, probably daily, And look at what Stephen has given. And we'll look at what Philip has given. Why? Because they were faithful just to serve meals. And then God says, I want to give you more and more and more and more and more because you're faithful. To me, those are six great things we learn from these men believe you're usable, identify your talent, have a plan to grow up and mature, be known by your community, be plugged in, be caught talking, be known by your community. Learn to say no and be faithful. And look what happens with Stephen. And Stephen, verse eight, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. More is being given to this guy. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, they live in Northern uh, Idaho, I believe, the freedmen up there, I've met a couple of them, as it was called. And of the Cyrenes and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen now starts to mix it up. Starts to talk about what he knows. And they arrest him. Throw him in jail. Put him on trial. Could you imagine that? Like the elders of Edgewater, if we had the power to like go arrest people and put them in jail. That's crazy. It'd be crazy Cool. People I have on my list, but I mean, it's really a crazy thing. Like, we don't like your religion, so we're going to arrest you, and they're going to do even worse to him right here. And I think when he's on trial, I wonder, on trial. I wonder if he's just like longing for the good old days when I was just barbecuing and helping widows. My goodness, how did this happen to me? Right? You ever been in that spot? Like, how did this happen to me? And they could never answer his attacks. Like, whatever he was saying, verse ten. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what they do then? A character assassination. It's called ad hominem attacks. Latin for at the man. Not at what he's saying now, it's at the man. It's when you're talking with somebody and you're disputing them and they say, oh, you're just a stupid idiot. Ad hominem attack. Well, that, that doesn't change what I told you. That's what happens to him, right? It's the same attack that happens to Jesus in Matthew 26. The temple, look out for the temple. The temple to them at this point was a sacred cow, right? You could not say anything bad about the temple. We have our sacred cows today. The constitution is a sacred cow in America. You cannot say anything bad about the constitution. It is now infallible and inerrant. It is perfect. We can't say anything bad about like school systems or teachers, they're really like, hey, hey, The military, we got to protect the military. These are sacred cows, just like back then. The temple, you could not say anything about it. I get in trouble whenever I mention Oprah Winfrey. I will get emails from people. How could you say something about Oprah? I'm like, well, have you read what she says she believes? I don't care. I love her. I know that's the problem. So I'm telling you, like, be careful of what she's saying because she is not a believer in Jesus. So now I'm getting emails, no problem. (laughs) I don't care. She's a wonderful woman. I have no problem with that. I have problems with what she says about Jesus, okay? That's my issue. So there there are things that you're just like, okay, if you step on this, it's gonna happen. The temple was one of those. I listened to this one podcast of of a preacher and he brought up a picture of Jesus. You know the picture everybody has? The 1970s hippie blonde, blue-eyed Jesus? Totally Middle Middle Eastern. Like, you know, yeah, right. (laughs) That's how Jesus looked. So he brought it up. He's like, this is not Jesus. And then he was going to tear the picture in half. And you could audibly hear a (gasps) gasp from the whole congregation. They're like, no, don't rip up Jesus. And and like, he didn't even have the nerve to do it. He's like, okay, I won't. (laughs) I don't know if he planned to before and then saw like the total of gasps and the crowd. Like, boy, I better not do that. No one will come back next week. But that's like sacred cows. Like, you just don't touch these things. So right here, you have three sacred cows. It's a place called the temple. It's procedures that was called the law, but by this time, it was not just the 613 do's and don'ts of the Old Testament, They had this document around it called the Mishnah, right? I'll give you an example. The the keep the Sabbath is like 26 words in the Hebrew. The Mishnah had 24 pages on how to keep the Sabbath, right? So that's how it expanded. How much you could put in your mouth, how how far you, just, it was unbelievable. How heavy your clothes could be, I mean, it was insane, right? So the, the, the procedure's now just huge. You couldn't touch them. So the place, the procedure, and the person of Moses. Moses was infallible, right? He was the dude. These were three sacred cows you could not ever, ever talk bad about. Don't we have the same thing today? Like sacred places? If I could only go there, if I could just go to that awesome church down in Redding, California, everything would be awesome for me. If I could just, just, Have the right procedures, right? Every self-help book is that. If I could just stop these bad habits and start these good habits, life would be awesome. Then lastly, if I could just talk to that person. I call it ask your John. If I could just talk to John Piper. If I could just talk to John MacArthur. If I could just talk to John Corson. If I could just talk to John Edwards. If I could just talk to John Calvin, right? All these great Johns. If I just had the John, then... Like, oh, this person, if I could just get a meeting with them, I'd be happy. What Stephen's gonna do in chapter seven is he's gonna tear all those down and say, it's Jesus. It's not the right place. It's not right procedures. It's not some person. What you need is Jesus. And you guys have been resisting God's spirit who's been telling you that in your heart this whole time. But here's what I love about Stephen. It's how he does it. Look at verse 15. And gazing at him, All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I guess he started to look a little bit like my wife here. Tink. Send that to her. You might want to listen to this message, sweetie. I don't know. (laughs) She's with sick kids right now. So, what about you? You're attacked taking a trial, drug in front of a bunch of people that are telling lies about you. Do you look like an angel or do you look like a fallen angel? Do you glow or do you turn red? Right? And it matters. How we respond in situations like this, oh, it matters. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you know who Penn and Teller are? They do the Mythbusters thing. I don't know if they still do it, but... Penn is a, he's an ardent atheist, right? He has this video, you can Google it, where a guy comes up to him after one of their shows and he's signing autographs or whatever and begins to talk to him and and shares with him and and has a conversation with him. And Penn's like, man, this guy, he was just so kind and so nice. I, I really liked him. And then he goes, I have a gift for you. And he pulled out a Gideon New Testament with Psalms and he gave it. Depend, who's an ardent atheist. And on this video, he's just talking about what had happened the night before. He's like, I don't know what it was, but the guy was so kind and he looked me straight in the eye and he was so genuine that I kept it. Now he goes, I know there's no God and I'm not believing in this stuff. But that guy, the way he gave it to me and how he treated me was so kind and so good and so generous. generous, that's the way to proselytize. If people proselytize like that, he says, then I am completely for it. This is an ardent atheist. My, fav- my favorite though is, this guy's name is Richard Morgan. And you can Google him. He has uh, his testimony. Uh, but Richard Morgan, he was the, the moderator for Richard Dawkins' website. Richard Dawkins, high priest of atheism, you know, the God delusion, hates pretty much everything about Christianity. Right? So n- not, he's Richard Morgan, not a believer in Jesus complete atheist, 100% atheist, moderates this, knows all the arguments about atheism. He's the dude. So there started this, this conversation about, um, it was the God delusion. So a pastor starts coming on this form. He doesn't know he's a pastor. His name is David Robertson. David Robertson wrote a book out of this interaction, actually, though. It's called the Dawkins Letters. And he starts just trying to say, hey, listen, I know Richard Dawkins says this, but that's not all the truth. Let me give you the other side. And so there, there starts this debate that goes on on this Richard Dawkins website on, in the comment section. And it just goes on and starts to gain this kind of fire and, and gets very like, you know, like things can get. Very excited. So um, he's moderating this thing. Richard Mar- Morgan's moderating this thing. And what happens is w- the atheists start to do some really kind of nasty stuff. like ah. and, and they started to notice David Robertson in his response and how it was very consistent and very kind. And he never attacked them and never got angry and never, he never responded in kind. So one day, Richard Morgan did this, he printed out all the comments. It was pages and pages and pages and pages of them. And he sat down on his front porch and had a, he's English, had a cup of tea. He's drinking his tea tea, and he started reading the comments and how they developed and where they went. And at the end of reading these comments and really the information that David Robertson's presenting as well. But it was the kind, he said, it was how kind David Robertson was to people that were calling him names, making threats against him, like really, really vile stuff. And how he was consistently kind that he just got down on his knees and said, I want that same thing. Jesus come into my heart. And he said, when that happened, he said he was flooded with a peace and with a joy he's never known in his life. It's brilliant. 62 years of old, years of age. Now it gets harder and harder to get saved. 62 years of age, ardent atheist, on a Richard Dawkins moderating website, and it's the kindness of one pastor answering that saves a soul. I tell this to people: if you're preaching and you get mad, if you're sharing Jesus and you get mad, stop. Just stop, because you're not helping anybody at that point. Just back away. Say, you know what? I'll talk about this later. Stephen looks like an angel, and he is preaching his funeral. Think about that. He looks like an angel and he's preaching his funeral. These people are gonna kill him. That's what I want. So let me end this way. He's gonna die. He's gonna die for Jesus. What's one thing you would die for? If you had to to make a list, what would you die for? Wife? Kids? Friend? would we ever put faith on that list? Because for us now, this kind of thing is so distant. Like who's worried? Who's really worried about having a gun put to your head and being told deny or die? Who's really worried about that? I'm not. We don't live in this kind of age. It happens. this day, if you're paying attention to India, I paid a lot of attention to India, in this place called Uttar Pradesh, there's a church where the radicals came in there and just blocked off the doors and beat the snot out of everybody. Everybody just happened on Sunday. So it still happens, not to us. So probably, you know, okay. So maybe to get closer for us, um, when you meet somebody for the first time, What's the one piece of information you try to get across to them, right? What's the one thing you want? I want you to know this about me. What is it? I'm an engineer, pastor. I own a Volkswagen bus. I have money. I don't have money. I have an education. I don't have an education. I traveled. I'm bilingual, whatever it is. Whatever that is, is, it's a Lord of your life. Do you know that? That one thing is really, it's the Lord of your life. It's what you are wanting people to know about. It controls you. It has a power over you, right? It's supposed to be Jesus. That's what it's supposed to be. Like, I want to leverage this conversation at some point so that I can get you to know about the most important person in history, which is my king. That, that's what Stephen does. We're gonna walk with a man who that's all he cares about. And he's gonna preach to his death. I want you to know my Jesus. He was willing to give up his life for something. And because he was willing to give up his life for something, that's why we read about him today. Because not a lot of people are really willing to give their life up for something. Most of us wanna protect our lives at all costs. He's eternally remembered because he said, I'll give my life for something. We have modern examples. Jim Elliot, Google him, 1954, goes down to uh, the Amazon jungle, wants to minister to people and gives up his life. And he wrote in his journal, maybe days before that, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer safe in New York City, safe in America, could have just waited out World War II. He goes, no, I'm going back, going back to my people in Germany. We remember him because he lived, gave up his life for something bigger, bigger. So here's what Acts is actually doing now. We've talked about the filling of God's spirit. And a lot of times the filling of God's spirit in the the church today is this idea like, you'll get goosebumps, you'll get power, you'll be able to do things, you'll be able to do miracles, whatever it is. But notice what, Acts is doing in the narrative. Right? It, it's it's the, the, the story is teaching you something, right? Here's the narrative is doing. Look back up at verse five. Stephen, um he's he's pointed out as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The filling of God's Spirit is not just to get Holy Ghost goosebumps or speak in tongues or do miracles. The feeling of the Holy Spirit is so that you can be a witness. The word witness is martyr. So that you give up your life. It's not yours anymore. And you are full of him. And it's not about you anymore. And you love not your life even unto death. And you say, I don't matter anymore. What matters is my king. That's what the filling of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be. And whatever he chooses to do with me, I'm fine with that because I trust him. Because he gave everything for me. And I'm giving everything back to him. Who wants to be full of that spirit? That's the the spirit. I give everything to you. My life is not my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore I glorify God with this body. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. That's what Stephen does. D.L. Moody put it like this. He said, the world has yet to see what God could do with a man. I'll put woman in there as well. What God could do with a man slash woman who is fully consecrated to God. Consecration means sets apart, set apart. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man or a woman who is fully consecrated to God. And then he added this. By God's grace, I am to be that man. D.L. Moody had a third grade education. There's D.L. Moody Institutes. There's D.L. Moody Bibles. There's D.L. Moody Printing. The YMCA, in case you started that, D.L. Moody, right? Was he fully consecrated to God? Well, pretty close. Did amazing things. To me, that's what the feeling of the Holy Spirit is. I wanna be fully consecrated to you. My life is not my own. Use me in any way you choose. I wanna be your martyr, your witness. That's the feeling of God's spirit. That's what Stephen will show us. And we get to walk through probably, arguably, the greatest sermon ever recorded in the church. Not with Jesus, he's before the church. The greatest sermon ever recorded in the church, Acts chapter seven. So Jesus Forgive me for holding on to my life, for not trusting your plan and your way enough to be wholly consecrated to you. May I learn the greatness of your love, the power of your plan to a new degree that allows me to let go of myself. I pray that for us. As we study Stephen, the church's first martyr, full of your spirit, face of an angel who gives everything for you, Lord, may that intrigue us. May D.L. Moody intrigue us. May this idea of what it means to be full of your spirit intrigue us. May what you said, that he that seeks to save his life will lose it, but he that loses his life for my sake will find it. May those truths sink into our minds and may we be consecrated for your purpose and may we see by God's grace what you're able to do with men and women who are fully consecrated to you. So we give ourselves to you tonight, Lord. Use us. May we be instruments for your glory and for your kingdom. And we pray this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.